hi everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Molly, can you help me out? Can you hear me? Okay, good. Thanks. That's my wife. That's my favorite person in the back. She's making me nervous because she's here. Well, yeah. Round of applause for Molly. Uh, so I'm Peter McHenry, and um, I'm an economist here on the faculty. I know a lot of you, not all of you. Uh, and I really love RUF, and I'm privileged and uh, happy to be here getting to talk to you all and share some thoughts. Uh, ben Robertson, who uh, is the minister for RUF here, is one of my favorite guys to drink coffee with. And we, um, we were talking about some thoughts that I could share with you all, and um, this idea of God and money came up. And one of the things that Ben was talking about in particular, he got the sense from talking to a bunch of students that, that we tend to compartmentalize a lot of ideas. And so uh, we go to church maybe and we, we, we think spiritually about some things, but then there are other things that we don't really apply um, back and forth, and money is maybe one of those. So how do we think about uh, the money that we have and how we use it and our aspirations for getting more in the future or career choices, educational choices, graduate school and things like that. Uh, and let's think about maybe decompartmentalizing those things a little bit. And so that's, uh, that's the topic for today. And the outline is to have three parts. So the first part, I'm going to share with you a fact that might be a bit controversial, but hopefully I'll convince you that it is a fact. Uh, and then I'm going to talk a little about scripture and what that has to say about the fact. And then I'll have some suggestions, some applications uh, about these ideas. So the fact is that you are rich. Okay, You might not feel rich, but I'm going to try to convince you that you are rich. And if you um, don't think you're rich right now, you probably will be pretty soon. Okay, And I'm putting myself in that boat too. I am also rich. And one of the things that we're going to need to know about this is that when the Bible talks about riches, that's us. Okay, It's talking about people in our position. And I'm going to make three observations to try to convince you that you and I are in fact quite rich. The first observation is that we live now. The second observation is that we live in the United States. And the third observation is that we're very highly educated people. Okay? Uh, so uh, a talk with an economist would be incomplete without graphs. So of course, we're going to have graphs. And here's a graph, this blue line. Economists have tried really hard, and it's a hard thing to do, but to go back into history to understand what was production like a long, long, long time ago, and what has happened with growth of economies and societies in terms of how many things we could create and enjoy, how many houses, how many uh, cars and uh, food, and how much food and all this kind of stuff, how wealthy are we on average as a society. And gross domestic product is a measure of how much an economy produces. And for England, economists have been able to go back to around 1270 AD to figure out how much production was happening per person in England that far back ago. And we'll just, we're going to talk about the Bible a bit. In Bible times, clearly production was lower, if anything, than at 1270. So let's look at this long-term scope of history. And you see that in the 1300s, the 1400s, the 1500s, people weren't really getting better off much at all on average. Living standards were stagnant. But then, 
Sometime around 1700, we got a little bit of a hint of improvement. And in the 1800s, and especially in the 20th century, growth just took off in a fantastic way. So that today, our living standards are orders of magnitude higher than they were in the long stretch of history, not that long ago. Okay? So in the, 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 scale of, you know, the scope of human history, we are living in, obviously, by and you know, far away, the richest time that we have ever seen. And we live now. We also live in the United States, at least for the time being. And here's a map that shows, close to now, the same measure of production for a lot of different countries. This idea of gross domestic product per capita. And we see that the lighter shaded countries are the poorer countries, and the darker shaded countries are the richer countries. And the United States is obviously one of the richest of those countries. So we live in the richest time in human history in one of the richest countries that there is. In addition to that, you can look in that richest country, in the richest time in the United States, at the distribution of earnings across people. And one of the big findings that we have in every data set we ever look at, I looked at the 2014 American Community Survey. So the Census Bureau asks tens of thousands of people, more than that, scores of thousands of people, how much money do you make, what's your job, what's your education level, all these kinds of things. And we can take an, a median of earnings by education level. And you find in all data sets you look at in the United States and a lot of other countries, that the more education you have, generally, the higher your earnings, the higher your income is as well. Now, everybody in this audience is very close to having a bachelor's degree. And so if I look at high school or less, if you get some college or an associate's degree, on average, people earn more money. But there's this big jump between a bachelor's degree and expected earnings at a job, and that since we have, um, you know, people who are highly educated tend to marry other people who are highly educated, household incomes are even higher for people who are highly educated. So we live in the richest time in the history of the human race. We live in one of the richest countries, and many of us are some of the wealthier people in the country. And if we're not right now, we will probably be pretty soon. Okay? So when the Bible talks about riches, we should probably pay attention. These are things that probably speak into our lives in a particular way. Because relative to the people Jesus was talking to, we're doing pretty well. We're doing fascinatingly, unimaginably well. Wealth wise. Okay? So that's the fact. These are more facts. And this is Margaret. So this is my daughter, Margaret, a few years ago, Christmas morning. So I want to share with you the Christmas morning problem. Molly and I were, um, you know, having, we have three kids, which are wonderful, and we, uh, we would go at Christmas, and our parents, who are the grandparents of our kids, of course, would lavish gifts upon the children, right? Just everything the children could possibly ask for, they got. And then they got more, and then they got even more, and more than that, right? And so at the end of Christmas, you had this, right? So this is Margaret, this is Caroline. All of their many, many toys, that's just the stuff that, you know, didn't fit in the trunk, right? And 
it's kind of exhausting to have all of this stuff. And I was tempted to say, you know, mom and dad, can we please tone down Christmas a little bit? I'm a little worried about the souls of my children. They're going to become entitled. They're going to become uh, you know, grasping, greedy, stuff-oriented people. Let's try to teach them how to live a little bit more frugally. Let's try to teach them how to live with a little bit less stuff. But before I approached my parents and my in-laws about that, I thought, you know, actually... Will my children mostly struggle with want and need and going without? Probably not. They live in this very wealthy time, in this very wealthy country. They're probably going to be highly educated because the children of highly educated people tend to be highly educated. They're probably going to do well. And so their struggles in life are probably going to be more about doing with than about doing without. So maybe it would be a better idea to try to get our kids to live wisely and flourishing lives in the midst of plenty, to deal with this well and wisely, rather than to try to kind of make up some sort of artificial scarcity and, oh, we're not as wealthy as we really are. Pretend. And our kids actually like this as well, because they get a lot more gifts. (laughs) So that works well. So scripture... Hopefully I've convinced you that we're quite rich. And scripture has a lot to say about riches. For example, Jesus was uh, giving a parable to his followers. And he was explaining the parable. I think Ben talked about this particular parable not long ago. And this is the parable of the soils and the parable of the sower. And... And Jesus was saying, look, there's this sower who's scattering seeds on these different kinds of soil. And uh, different things happen to these different seeds. And people said, what are you talking about, Jesus? And he's explaining that. He's explaining one of those soils. And he said, as for what was sown among the thorns, what I'm illustrating here is this is the one who hears the word. So here's the message of Jesus. Good news. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So the deceitfulness of riches are getting in the way of people adopting, incorporating into their lives the life-giving message of Jesus. Just really scary bad stuff. If that is us. Similarly... um, Paul was writing to Timothy, giving him advice and wise counsel. And then he's he's describing a lot of things. He says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So we have money and riches, which are associated with missing out on the message of Jesus. And also money, which is associated very closely with evil. And we are very moneyed, rich people. We ought to pay attention. These passages probably ought to make us kind of uncomfortable, I think. Okay? So, are riches really bad? Is money bad and dirty and ugly? My proposition to you is that no. Riches are not really bad in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with riches. There's nothing wrong with wealth. Um, One way to see that is that when Paul is writing, he's not saying... Money is the root of all evil. Some people say, 
Oh, money is the root of all evil. Money is bad, right? No, no, no. He doesn't say that. He says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So there's probably evil that's not got money in the root. And there's also it's the love of money. It's not really money itself that's the problem. And furthermore, when we look at Scripture, we see a lot of examples of people who are quite wealthy and also righteous in some ways. And God doesn't really blame them for their wealth. In fact, sometimes God gives them wealth as a particular blessing in the way he wants to give his message. Uh, and sometimes God uses people's wealth in the Bible for his purposes. So uh, Joseph of Arimathea was a pretty wealthy guy, had a burial plot, and he donated it for Jesus' body, right? So he's using his wealth. We're not really, he's not being criticized. He's actually using it here. Um, Job, for example, was super, super wealthy and was a very righteous man. And his wealth didn't make him unrighteous or anything like that. He wasn't evil because he was wealthy. He was just wealthy. Then he lost a lot of it, and then he got it back, right? Even more. So I wouldn't say that riches are in and of themselves bad, but the Bible necessarily warns us a lot about riches and their effects on us, potentially. And so what's wrong with riches? I would argue that what's wrong with riches is the deceitfulness of riches that Jesus was talking about. And the tendency for riches to lie to us about ourselves and about others, and our tendency to listen to those lies. And so riches can be very deceiving and can lead us away. It can be very tempting in a couple of different ways. One is toward idolatry. So riches can corrupt or, or break our relationship with God through idolatry. Riches also can lead us to oppress other people. Okay. So this is a pattern that I think we can take from the words of Jesus himself when he was asked, what is a great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Love the Lord. Love God. And a second is like you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Of these two commandments, on these two commandments, demand all the law and the prophets. So, you know, the law in the scripture, of course, points us to the fact that we don't measure up and that we're sinful and that we're not doing what we ought to do. I think the law also can be used to show us a picture of fruitful and wise living. So I think that we can interpret Jesus' message here as saying, look, you want a pattern for fruitful and wise life? For living well, love God, and love your neighbor. And everything kind of flows out of that, right? So compared to riches, I think the deceitfulness of riches, it gets in the way of that wise living. Or it can. It doesn't have to necessarily, but it can, and we want to be very careful not to let it, if we're in power to do that. So let's take these uh, one at a time. What's an idol? An idol is anything that we worship instead of God. So if you uh, decide or act as if you are getting peace and rest and satisfaction out of something that is not God, then that thing is an idol. And that's going to pull you away. It's going to mess up your relationship with God in a very bad way with bad consequences. 
But riches are tantalizing. They provide a ready-made, very tantalizing idol. Now, related to riches is also um, your position in the world. Not just how much money is in your bank account, but also how much you have progressed in society, how elite you are, right? So I can see some uh, of this idolatry problem in my own story. So I went to college, and I wanted to be an economist, and so I applied to graduate school, I got into graduate school, and I went. The first year was super hard. It tore me down. It was really rough. The first midterm, I remember getting it back, and I was at the bottom of the class. And at the end of the first year, I knew from the beginning, there were going to be these two exams, we called them the comprehensive exams, and if you fail those exams, you're told to leave. You fail, and you don't get to continue the class. Oh, that was such a weight, right? And so I thought, man, if I just can pass these exams and make it to my second year, oh, everything will be okay, right? I just really want to pass these in. And people really do fail them, right? It's not just a rite of passage, but it's a, it's a hurdle. So I studied super hard, really very hard, passed those exams. Got into the second year, right? Whew, I've arrived. That's great, right? No, not really. It was in the second year, and I really needed to do a lot of research. I needed to write a dissertation. I needed to get that PhD. And I thought, man, if I just get that PhD, I'll really be an economist. I'll be a member of the club. Be awesome. And then I will have arrived. Everything will be fine if I just get this PhD. So I worked really hard, got the PhD. Satisfied? No, not really. I wanted a job. I wanted a really good job. I wanted a job in an elite place. I wanted to teach awesome students who loved to learn and wanted to push me and challenge me. And so I tried really hard to get a job. I got a job. Got a job at William Mary. One of the best, right? And so. That was great. But then I really wanted tenure, right? <laughs> so I was an assistant professor, and you know, six or seven years into the process, if I haven't done enough research, they tell me to leave. And I got this great job. I don't want to lose my great job. And so if I could just get tenure, I worked so hard, I want to get tenure, and then I got tenure, okay? So now I've arrived, right? Everything's great. I'm satisfied with life. Everything's not really. Not at all. I'm not satisfied at all. I want to get more papers published, better journals. I want people to think that I'm a better economist than, uh, than I have been. I want to keep improving. I want students to think that I'm doing well in the classroom over and over and over. I want to be a full professor, not just an associate professor. And so, man, it's a treadmill. Never satisfied. Right? This pursuit of, you know, riches are coming along the way. My income is going up. But for me, it's more not just wealth in itself, but the status, prestige, right? It's never going to satisfy. So, social scientists think a lot about. <laughs> this isn't a punchline slide. <laughs> social scientists think a lot about satisfaction. And we think a lot about um, how people perceive their utility or how well they're doing in life. And this is a, a graph that describes the idea of prospect theory, which two psychologists, uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, invented. And it's a great model that describes 
uh, satisfaction that people can get, how people evaluate their lives, and I think can have some um, explanatory power for us today. So prospect theory hypothesizes that people evaluate their experiences as gains or losses relative to some expectation, which we call the reference point. So people in any situation make some expectation about what is going to happen to them. That's their reference point. And if they do better than they expected, that's really good. And they feel happy. Their value's here. Their value goes up if they gain uh, relative to their expectation. So we can imagine the reference point is the job and the wealth level I have right now. And if I get more, then I'm happy. That's good. That's a good outcome. My satisfaction increases. And it increases pretty fast, but then, of course, the more money I get, the, the, the marginal satisfaction diminishes a little bit. I get a decreasing sensitivity to increases, right? Now, losses uh, go obviously the opposite way, but in prospect theory, when you have a loss relative to your expectations, so you don't quite meet something, say you lose your job, like I didn't get tenure, right? Then your satisfaction goes way down and it goes faster than satisfaction goes up when you get a gain. So this is prospect theory's idea of loss aversion. And this is a very powerful motivator. I really don't want to lose my job, not get tenure, so I'm going to work really hard to avoid this loss. Now one of the problems, and the main reason I bring this up, is what is our reference point? When we're thinking about getting satisfaction from riches, I observe myself and I think I observe other people <coughs> setting their reference point as their goal or their status quo, where they are now. And so when I go through each step in my life, you know, yeah, I, I passed those comprehensive exams, but soon after I just kind of got complacent about that. Sure, I'm the kind of person who passes comprehensive exams. Now, that's my reference point. I'm not really happy about that anymore. That happiness has sailed, right? So now, I really want to get a PhD. And now once I have a PhD, I'm pretty complacent with that. It's not really giving me much joy anymore. I've got to do something else. I've got to do something else. I've got to do something else. So the problem with riches is that they are tantalizing, and they will tell you lies about yourself. And they will tell you you're not okay. You need more and more and more. And you are kind of what you create for yourself and what you make. So how do we deal with this? And, and I should say as well, this is a problem, I think, for people who are rich, but also for people who don't feel particularly rich. A lot of times, say you have a lot of debt or you have very low income or something, a lot of times you might think, if I could just get this debt off of me, then everything will be okay. It's the same kind of thing. Sure, that's a good thing to get the debt off of you. That's nice and appropriate, but it's probably not going to satisfy you ultimately. It's probably not going to make everything you know, bad melt away. So what's the antidote to the deceitfulness of riches with respect to this idolatry problem? It's the gospel truth. And the gospel truth is that your identity is a gift from God. You aren't just what you make of yourself. You are what God made you to be. And he's good and he's all-powerful, and he's providing for you in just the way that he intends to provide for you. And so if you have riches, 
If you don't, that's true, right? And Paul wrote it this way. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. So we're children of Christ the King by faith in him, which is much more important than riches higher or lower, than gains relative to a reference point. Now, it's very hard to preach this gospel to yourself. It's very hard for me to preach this gospel to myself, as every day I get sucked back into the idolatry of status and riches and reputation. It's hard work, but it's fruitful work. It's helpful work. And so that's, I think, the antidote to the deceitfulness of riches. Now, riches also interact with your relationships with your neighbors. So some more scripture. In Leviticus, God was telling his nation, his people, this is how you ought to be. This is what you ought to do. And so one of the commands was, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the alien." Or the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Kind of a stinger at the end. I really mean this, guys. So what do we have here? We have some people who are given wealth. And God is telling them, give generously out of your wealth to those in need. Poor folks. Folks who are foreigners who are also, you know, way down on the social status pole. uh, Who are probably poor as well. But of course, God's people didn't really do that well. So Amos warns the people, therefore, because you trample on the poor, he's talking to God's people later on, and you exact taxes of grain from him, the poor, you've built houses of hewn stone, like you've got really nice places to live, but you're not going to live in them. You're not going to dwell in them. For I know how great are your sins. So pretty harsh words for folks who oppress the poor. And then later on, James, come now, you rich, weep and howl. Really scary words to rich folks, right? The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. So there's some pretty clear uh, exhortations. If you're in a position of authority, don't exploit the poor. Justice ought to be what you're going after. And so I think if we are employers or county administrators or police officers, um, judges. We ought to be seeking after justice and not show favoritism uh, and uh, in particular not oppress the poor. Now, for most of the folks in the room, we're not really judges. Many of us are not employers, right, Um, who are concerned about paying fair wages to folks. Although one of these days, many of you will probably be in those positions. I think the more salient comments would be about more give generously to the poor. Okay. So when we're thinking about we're rich, uh, how ought we to deal with that? I think the exhortation then is, is to think about how to give generously out of our riches. Right? There are folks who are struggling, our neighbors who are having a hard time. How can we be helpful to them and not greedy and not grasping? So one big question this brings up is how much money to give away? Well, how much should I give? I don't know. I'm not sure. I've thought about this a lot. I haven't really found the right answer. 
Uh, but my suspicion is that the answer is more, at least in my life, right? How much should I give? Well, I'm probably being kind of greedy and grasping with the stuff that I have, and so I probably should be giving more than I am. I can't give more forever, of course, and so that's not always the answer, but it seems to me that that's kind of where, where I am. But in addition to that, just some very practical ideas. Here are some suggestions for trying to deal with wealth and your relationship with your neighbors. Beware wealthy reference points. So remember this prospect theory idea. The reference point is what you kind of expect. And it's easy, especially as you get a bit older and you get a bit more wealth built up, it's kind of easy to get just used to your level of wealth and your standard of living. And if you're running with a lot of people with the same standard of living, you can become somewhat entitled to what you have and think, well, this is just everybody just should have this, right? And so in a lot of cases, that's fine, but you want to beware of kind of losing sight of the fact that you might not need all of this stuff, right? Maybe you could consider uh, being a bit more generous, and it's a reference point kind of thing. And you're just getting used to what you have, uh, and it's not, you might want to try to step out of what you have and, and evaluate a little bit more uh, how much you can be generous with those. Uh, another idea, start young and start small. So giving and being generous and trying to treat your wealth kind of not as you're entitled to your own, but a, a tool that you could use for good purposes, it's a habit. And it's very easy to gradually get more income and more wealth over time and realize at the beginning, well, I don't have enough money to give away anything. I'm barely making ends meet. But after a while, I think, gosh, you know, I just never thought about giving any money away. And all of a sudden, here I am doing very, very well. But if you build the habit in early on of giving and being generous to others and not so much grasping, then I think uh, you can do pretty well in developing that habit and growing through it uh, over time. And if you don't have enough money to give anything away, and you really don't, well, then maybe you can try to be generous with your time, generous with your attention, listening to people, things like that. Just kind of being a little bit more other-focused in other ways as well. Another idea is don't wait for the ask, okay? So the time to think about how generous to be in your life is not when the offering plate is being passed at church and it's two people over there. Oh, gosh, you know, how much money should I be giving away in my life? This is a big life decision. Don't wait till the last minute because you know what I do in the last minute? I say no. I'm really greedy and grasping in the last minute. If you just come up to me and say, hey, we've got this great thing going on. Can, you have some, can I have some money? I say no. No, no, no. But I've got to work on myself to be less greedy and less grasping. And so I try to do that more intentionally. Also, don't wait until somebody says, hey, we've got this really great thing where we're helping people who are homeless. We're helping people struggling for this problem. Can you give? You could be seeking those opportunities out early on. Now, not waiting for them to come to you and ask, but just say, hey, you're doing this great stuff. Can I come alongside? Can I help out? And then the last thing, very practically, Automate things. So what Molly and I do is try to get our greedy grasping selves out of the decision of being generous. And so the way we do that is to automate it. So early in the year, we think, you know, we've got this much money and we can try to, you know, be generous with this much. And these are the folks who could probably use it. And so we make a plan and then we just tell our bank, hey, write a check every month or every couple of weeks or something over there. And so every moment that it, the check has to be written, 
I'm not having to have some sort of, you know, crisis of something in my head. Am I really going to be, oh, do I, can, do I give sacrificially? No, no, no. I decided that a long ago. I know in the moment I'm going to be greedy and grasping and not give as much as I want. So it's helpful just to automate it. Take yourself out of the equation. And I think that's a fine way uh, to deal with that as well. So just some practical ideas. Let's come back to the Christmas morning problem. Margaret and Caroline, and Thomas now too, get a lot of stuff at Christmas, and we want to try to teach them how to live wisely amidst plenty, and it's exhausting. I had the opportunity over the summer to spend some time with uh, the pastor at our church when I was in graduate school, and uh, really wonderful man, really very instrumental in a lot of things that happened in my life, and his name is Preston. And I got to talk to Preston, and I told him about this, this thing I was wrestling with, you know, kids and, and wealth and how do we deal with this. And Preston's response was to say, well, you know, if their first love is Jesus, then I don't think you'll really have any problem. I think they'll be just fine. And they'll navigate this just quite well. And I thought, whoa, my first, you know, their first love is Jesus. I sure hope it is. And I will try to help inculcate that in them, certainly. But I also started to think, is Jesus my first love? Sure, theoretically, do I act that way? Do I live that way? Not really. Not really all the time, right? But I would like to. And I also know that if I did live as if Jesus were my first love, and not so much idols, and not so much prestige, and not so much what people think of me, and not so much wealth or my savings account, then I think I wouldn't really have a problem with wealth disrupting my relationship with God. And I wouldn't really have a problem with wealth disrupting my relationship with others, because wealth would be kind of neither here nor there. If I have it, okay, let's use it to the glory of God. If I don't have it, Okay, I'm being provided for already by a loving father, right? So wealth, I don't think is bad in and of itself, but it can be very tempting, can lead us to straying from God and also having broken relationships with others. But I think if we trust in Christ to free us from those kinds of temptations, then in him, we can deal well with wealth and think intentionally about it, but not let it kind of get us down. So those are the things I wanted to share, and I don't know what happens next, Michael. Uh, we're going to sing more songs, I guess. Sing more songs. Okay, great. Excellent.